Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. We've discussed the end of slavery many, many times here on Dig. We've talked about abolition in the context of Reconstruction, in the context of refugees, sometimes called contraband, in the context of Black military service, in the context of the Black Codes and Jim Crow, just to name a few. You might notice something in that list. Each of those things centers specifically on the end of slavery, but not on the long and arduous effort to end slavery. In the many times that we've talked about abolition and emancipation, at least here in the U.S., we've talked almost exclusively about the final days of America's peculiar institution. Today, let's shift our focus and look instead at the big picture, the long and evolving effort to end slavery in the United States. Slavery didn't end in an instant, and it didn't end in a vacuum. Emancipation was a long, protracted, painful process built on over eight decades of debates, activism, and armed rebellion. It wasn't a straight path. It was built on as much, if not more, grief and disappointment as it was on successful action. It was the very definition of people creating a foundation for a future that they would not see. Today, we're talking about the long road to the abolition of slavery in the United States. It's a story that transcends historical specializations. It encompasses the history of politics, economics, colonization, agriculture, race, and more. It transcends national boundaries. It includes colonies and nations around the Atlantic world. And it transcends historical eras. It's dense and difficult, but ultimately, I think it holds an important lesson for all of us who strive for justice. I'm Sarah. And I'm Avril. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. Thank you for joining us today. Before we dive in, we want to thank you, our listeners, and especially our Patreon supporters who help keep this history excavation team digging. A big shout out and thanks to our fabulous auger and excavator level patrons, Lauren, Edward, Iris, Denise, Susan, Agnes, Peggy, Colin, Maddie, Maria, Jesse, and Hannah. We can't thank you enough. 
Listener, if you're not a patron of the show, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. Oh, by the way, we'll be at the OAH. Yeah. If you're uh, an American historian and you are going to the OAH in Boston in a few weeks, this is um, happening, what, the first weekend in April, last weekend in March, the combo thereof. Exactly. Um, Come and check us out. We'll be hosting a workshop on how to podcast. Come, come see us. First, as I so often do, I want to start with a little disclaimer and also a little shout out. The disclaimer, this is a history of the long journey to abolition, not of the abolitionist movement. What I mean by that is that this is going to be miles long, but an inch deep. If you're interested in some aspect of this story, I'll link our other episodes that cover those topics and offer ideas for further reading in the show notes. I probably will also do future episodes on some of these topics, some of the things, the events, and people that we mentioned throughout. Secondly, a shout out. The majority of the research for this episode was drawn from Patrick Rail's beautifully written new book, 88 Years, The Long Death of Slavery in the United States, 1777 to 1865. If you want to know more or want to support his excellent research, please, please do consider picking up this really great book. Let's start with an incredibly brief reminder of how slavery came to be entrenched in America. Slavery first arrived in the North American colonies as part of the process of colonization. European nations like Great Britain, France, Spain, the Netherlands, and Portugal looked to the rest of the world, particularly to North and South America, as sites of great potential wealth. To get the most out of the global demand for sugar, the Portuguese began to expand their use of African labor, previously used mostly off the coast of Africa on islands like Sao Tome and Cape Verde, to their colony in Brazil. Even as early as 1500, over 80,000 Africans had already been transported in the Portuguese Atlantic slave trade. Other European nations were quick to get on what was essentially a cash grab. Between sugar production and the trade in African slaves, there was serious money to be made. South America and the Caribbean islands were the most lucrative. The Dutch and Portuguese squabbled over Brazil, and the British, Dutch, French, Spanish, and Portuguese all scrambled to gobble up the tropical islands. The British were initially the big losers in this dash for land and money. While they did control the British West Indies, the topic of another episode in our uh, race series, the rest of their colonial holdings weren't actually all that lucrative. Fur trading in Canada was decent, but Jamestown, the settlement in what is now Virginia, struggled to even feed itself for the first few years, let alone produce any wealth. Other British colonies, especially those in New England, like the Massachusetts Bay Colony, weren't centered on economic productivity at all. Nevertheless, in 1619, as we all know now, thanks to Nicole Hannah-Jones' brilliant 1619 project, the first enslaved people arrived in the American colonies. Slavery was common and widespread across the American colonies, regardless of the region. Remember, the American colonies were holdings of those European nations, which all embraced slavery. So as people moved around and in between colonies, they brought their enslaved Africans with them. So there were enslaved people held in bondage across the northern colonies and the southern colonies. In the southern colonies, which slowly but surely were becoming productive, enslaved Africans were largely put to work in sugar, indigo, and tobacco cultivation, 
In the northern colonies, they performed a mix of domestic labor, agricultural work, and skilled labor. Over the ensuing century and a half, slavery became an important component of the mercantile system between the metropole and the American colonies. And let me just note here, we know that indigenous Americans were also enslaved, and we actually just recently discussed that in our episode on Tichuba, the enslaved woman who was kind of embroiled in the Salem witch trials. In this episode, though, trying to keep this episode as uh, manageable as possible, we're limiting our focus to the enslavement of Africans. If you're interested in learning more on slavery in the northern colonies, also, I should say we do have an entire episode on slavery in colonial New York that can offer you a little more context on that as well. Perfect. This brings us then to the first phase of the quest for abolition, what historian Patrick Rael calls the age of revolutionary abolitionism. Feeling neglected and exploited by their colonial masters in England, the American colonists began to agitate for independence. But this was a conflict about more than a simple frustration over high taxes. It was also informed by the philosophy of English thinkers like John Locke and William Blackstone, as well as French Enlightenment philosophers like Montesquieu, Rousseau, and Kant. Influenced by the writing of such thinkers, Americans saw high taxes and other abuses as the attempt of English elites to subjugate American colonists and disrespect their individual rights to life, liberty, and property. Slavery, then, occupied a complicated part of this rhetoric. On the one hand, slavery became a useful metaphor. To emphasize the sense that they were being oppressed by the crown, Americans embraced a philosophy that understood all human society as either free or slave. For instance, John Jay, a revolutionary from the New York colony, wrote to the Continental Congress that Great Britain was, quote, forging chains for her friends and children and, quote, enslaving colonists with bureaucratic plans. Silas Downer, a patriot from Rhode Island, stated that taxation without representation, quote, placed colonists at the, in the lowest bottom of slavery, end quote. John Hancock, describing the colonists at the Boston Massacre, said that the men were, quote, delivering the oppressed from the iron grasp of tyranny, transforming the hoarse complaints and bitter moans of wretched slaves into cheerful songs, end quote. In one of the most famous addresses of the American Revolution, Patrick Henry's Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death <laughs> speech, the Southerner and slaveholder cried, quote, There is no retreat but in submission and slavery. Our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston, end quote. Even British statesmen used the term. Edmund Burke, a supporter of the calls for American independence, asked Parliament, quote, tell me what one character of liberty the Americans have and what one brand of slavery they are free from. Slavery they can have anywhere, freedom they can have from none but you. But in reality, as we are assuredly we're all thinking during that, you know, long list of quotes, colonists were not slaves. Their enslaved Africans were slaves. Slavery wasn't just a rhetorical device in the American colonies. It was a very real thing. And this was a problem American revolutionaries recognized immediately. This was not like something that they were just blind to. 
John Jay, who had compared the colonists to slaves just now, also recognized that these cries for liberty were a joke while Americans held other humans in bondage, saying that until America embraced abolition, quote, her prayers to heaven for liberty will be impious. Thomas Jefferson recognized that human bondage was immoral and wrote that he worried when he remembered that, quote, God was just. A printer in Boston attached a call for abolition for four enslaved men to a famous oration on liberty. Um, so he's he's printing this pamphlet and he's like tacking on his own like little thing at the end saying like, oh, hey, pay attention to this. Um, and it urged Americans not to forget that, quote, near one sixth part of the inhabitants of America are held in real slavery. I just love the ballsiness of that. Abigail Adams, always the voice of reason in her letters to her husband, John, wrote, quote, I wish most sincerely there was not a slave in this province. It always appeared a most iniquitous scheme to me to fight for ourselves what we are daily robbing and plundering from those who have as good a right to freedom as we have. And the English used this hypocrisy as a point against the Americans. One Englishman wrote to a friend in the colonies, quote, you and your countrymen are reduced to the dilemma of either acknowledging the rights of your Negroes or of surrendering your own. Early anti-slavery Americans seized on the widespread ideology of liberty to advocate for emancipation. While there had been a movement to end slavery before the revolution, it was limited and scattered. Many historians credit the Spanish priest Bartolomé de las Casas, who advocated against the enslavement of indigenous Americans in the Spanish colonies as the first anti-slavery writer in the Atlantic world. In the British American colonies starting in the late 17th century, Pennsylvania Quakers declared that Quakers must, in accordance with their religious beliefs, oppose slavery. A century later, Quakers like John Woolman and Anthony Benezet became some of the first anti-slavery activists in the colonies. Those early calls for emancipation, though, were grounded in Quakerism and Christianity. The ideology of the revolution then allowed anti-slavery to become embedded in the general ethos of the era, transcending religious affiliation and belief. After all, it was easy for proponents of slavery to refute calls for abolition with the very accurate point that slavery existed in the Bible and was endorsed or at least recognized by the founders of the faith. But the idea that slavery violated a person's natural rights made slavery seem clearly, quote, incompatible with the transcendent principles upon which the new nation had been established, end quote. The argument was used by enslaved people themselves. In 1777, four African-American men sought their freedom from the Massachusetts state legislature, making an argument based entirely on the ideology of the American Revolution. Quote, the efforts made by the legislature of this province to free themselves from slavery gave us, who are in that deplorable state, a high degree of satisfaction. We expect great things from men who had made such a noble stand against the designs of their fellow men to enslave them. We cannot but wish and hope, sir, that you will have the same grand object. We mean civil and religious liberty in view of your next session, end quote. I think we should clarify something here. We're not saying that African-Americans were simply regurgitating white ideas or that the concept of abolition or liberty came from whites. Rather, African-Americans seized on the moment in the language of the revolution to redefine what slavery and freedom meant. 
they were able to punch a hole in the colonists' claim to liberty in such a way that whenever those claims were invoked, colonists were forced to grapple with the realities of chattel slavery in America. This was an effect that outlasted the revolutionary era. The American paradox became a permanent feature of debates around American slavery and ultimately helped to spell its demise. Before we move on, I want to say that um, those several, um, those four gentlemen in Massachusetts who petitioned for their freedom in 1777 were initially not successful um, in that first petition. They did apply again. They petitioned again and had this like very snarky thing that they sent to the legislature being like, we've already asked you once. Um it's not clear in the text whether that petition was successful either. I suspect it wasn't. But as we'll discuss in a minute, Massachusetts did effectively end slavery not too long thereafter. In practical terms, though, American colonists, especially Southern slaveholding ones, were nervous that ideas about slavery and liberty could be weaponized against them. And, you know, with good reason. James Madison wrote worriedly in 1774 that enslaved Virginians were approaching the British in hopes that they could gain their freedom by offering their support. A few of these unhappy wretches, he wrote, quote, met together and chose a leader who was to conduct them when the English troops should arrive, with the idea that, quote, by revolting to them, they should be rewarded with their freedom. Ultimately, Madison was less worried about Black Americans joining forces with the English and more about them seizing the chaotic moment to launch insurrections. Other patriots recognized that the enslaved could easily exploit the moment to seize their freedom. John Adams described in 1777 the way that some Southern colonists were panicky about the possibility that British troops could promise freedom to African Americans in exchange for their military labor. Slaves, he wrote, quote, had a wonderful art of communicating intelligence amongst themselves and believed that they would organize and, quote, run several hundreds of miles in a week or a fortnight. These did not turn out to be unfounded fears. In 1775, Lord Dunmore, the colonial governor of Virginia, used Virginians' fears of slave insurrections against them, threatening to free slaves and foment violent insurrection if any Virginians disobeyed his orders. Later, Dunmore declared martial law in Virginia and released a proclamation that promised freedom to all slaves who would join the Crown's armed forces. So exactly the, the fear that John Adam was articulating about a year earlier. The proclamation threw colonists into a tizzy who scrambled to warn the enslaved away from taking the governor up on his offer. For many, it became another item on their list of British threats to American liberty. Dunmore eventually was forced into exile, and the few hundred slaves who answered his call went with him. Many of them returned to slavery in other parts of the Atlantic world. Whether they went to Dunmore or to other commanders, it's now estimated that thousands of enslaved Americans flocked to British troops around the colonies, hoping to earn their freedom over the course of the war. The paradox of liberty and slavery did not disappear when the revolution came to an end in 1783. In some ways, the problem only became thornier as Americans worked to build new governments. The founding generation, it should go without saying, had a complicated relationship to slavery, one that was manifest in the federal constitution, which was hashed out in Philadelphia at the Constitutional Convention in the summer of 1787. 
55 delegates took part in the conventions. Of that number, 25 were slaveholders. Immediately, the issue of how slavery would be represented in the new constitution was contentious. There were several concessions to slavery. For instance, the Fugitive Slave Clause, Article 4, Section 2, which required that states return all escaping slaves. Probably the biggest problem had to do with the creation of a federal legislature. Small states wanted fixed representation, while large states advocated for, for proportional representation based on state population. As we all know, the compromise solution included a bicameral legislature with houses that used each system, so Senate being fixed with two senators, and House of Representatives based on population. Population would be determined by the three-fifths clause, which gave southern slaveholding states a clear advantage. Ryle points out, just as one example, that in the first Congress, the three-fifths clause resulted in an, quote, 11% bonus for southern power. That power imbalance remained pretty consistent for decades. And we discussed slavery in the Constitution in our episode on the 1776 Commission Report last year. So many linkages to other episodes in this episode. It's crazy. You'll have lots of listening to do if you're new to us. (laughs) (laughs) At the same time, the states were drafting their own constitutions. In every northern state, anti-slavery advocates seized the moment as legislatures convened to draft new governing documents, eager to convince framers to take the opportunity to end slavery in their state. But each state had a different path to abolition. Vermont, in 1777, became the first state and, in fact, the first government in the so-called New World to unequivocally abolish slavery in its constitution, punctuated with the statement that, quote, the idea of slavery is expressly and totally exploded from our free government. In Massachusetts, a series of lawsuits brought by enslaved African-Americans for their freedom led to court rulings that effectively killed slavery, even though no official law was actually on the books until the passage of the 13th Amendment in 1865. So the petitions we mentioned above um, from those um, enslaved people in 1777 had a real impact on killing slavery in Massachusetts. In 1784, both Rhode Island and Connecticut passed laws declaring all future children born into slavery free once they reached adulthood, which was determined as 18 for girls and 21 for boys, obviously reflecting the fact that men had the potential for more labor um, in the eyes of, of, you know, early 19th century people. In Pennsylvania, the legislature, heavily influenced by Quakers, so many Quakers, passed a bill uh, declaring slavery repugnant to liberty, but also imposing a gradual emancipation process, which kept people in slavery for 28 years. So repugnant, but we're not going to free you for essentially 30 years. In New York and New Jersey, the process was even more drawn out. New York debated abolition for over 15 years before finally passing a gradual emancipation law in 1799. New Jersey didn't pass an abolition law until 1804, which only freed children born into slavery after 21 years for girls and 25 years for boys. Patrick Rail notes that on the eve of the Civil War, New Jersey still listed 18 enslaved people on the federal census. Many of the so-called founding fathers believed that slavery was dying a slow death. It was the vestige of a past that was destined to eventually peter out as the young nation grew. 
This did not translate, however, into real efforts to end slavery in southern states. Thomas Jefferson, who often wrote about his worries about the morality of slavery and the threat it contained for the future of the nation, and who, of course, was sexual partner to his own enslaved woman, Sally Hemings, and father of her children, he ultimately rejected abolition efforts in the belief that the public would reject them. Instead, Upper South states Virginia, Delaware, and Maryland passed laws making it easier to manumit slaves upon your death. This soothed the minds of some members of the founding generation, who were able to manumit a few slaves upon their deaths while extracting as much labor as possible from them while living. Manumission laws did have an impact, creating significant increases in the free black populations of the Upper South, people who often lived in close proximity to those still in bondage and remembered intimately what it was like to be enslaved. The American Revolution helped to inspire an age of revolutions, which served to underscore the hypocrisy of America's legacy of liberty and embrace of slavery. In the Caribbean, slave revolts exploded in Martinique, and a full-blown revolution unfurled on the French colony of Saint-Domingue, or Haiti, uh, which sent shockwaves through America's slaveocracy. There's almost no way to explain the Haitian Revolution quickly and do it any justice. So please do keep exploring that topic if you're interested. I know Marissa has uh, talked about doing an episode specifically on the Haitian Revolution, but we do discuss it in our episode on Caribbean slave revolts. So um, I have that linked here in the show notes and, and do check that out for a fuller explanation. But Essentially, the revolution in Haiti was a combination slave revolt and political revolution, as Haitians seized the chaos amid the French Revolution to demand their freedom as a colony and as people held in bondage. In other words, the war in Haiti represented the greatest fears of American colonists during the revolution, that the enslaved would use the moment to demand their freedom using the language of liberty that was born out of the revolutionary ethos. While abolitionists cheered the Haitian Revolution, considering it a welcome extension of the principles of the American Revolution, others saw it as a harbinger of potential terror. President George Washington pledged to the French ambassador in 1791 that America would, quote, render every aid in their power to the French against the, quote, alarming insurrection in Saint-Domingue. In Charleston, where white refugees entered the port from Haiti, bringing their enslaved people with them, paranoia raged that those slaves would foment rebellion among South Carolina's slaves. African Americans, however, insisted that Americans could not ignore the linkages between the struggle for freedom in Haiti and the legacy of the American Revolution. The most immediate impact of the Haitian Revolution was in its inspiration of similar slave uprisings in America. In 1800, an enslaved Virginian man named Gabriel Prosser was inspired by the revolution on Saint-Domingue to plot a similar uprising in which armed slaves would storm the capital in Richmond and demand their freedom. His revolt was discovered and quashed before it could even begin. Twenty years later, formerly enslaved pastor Denmark Vesey reportedly read deeply about the age of revolutions, especially consuming everything he could about Haiti. He planned a revolt to be launched on July 14th to coincide with the anniversary of the storming of the Bastille in France, which had helped launch the revolution there. Rebels would capture an armory, burn the city of Charleston, South Carolina, and escape to Haiti, where they would continue their quest for freedom like a government in exile. 
But like Prosser, Vesey's plot was also discovered before it could get underway, and Charleston unleashed a brutal crackdown on its black and enslaved residents. Abolitionists also used other means to invoke the Haitian Revolution. At least three African-American writers wrote books about the Haitian Revolution before the Civil War, including the intellectual and abolitionist William Wells Brown. In his book, Brown compared the Haitian general Toussaint Louverture to George Washington, saying both were, quote, leaders of an oppressed and outraged people. Each had a powerful enemy to contend with, and each succeeded in founding a government in the new world, end quote. The difference, though, Brown said, was that Louverture liberated his people while Washington continued to enslave his. White abolitionist James Burney noted that Haitians achieved their liberty in the same way that Americans had, through rebellion. In this way, abolitionists ensured that Americans were forced to continue to grapple with the paradox at the core of their nation. As America moved into the 19th century, it became increasingly clear that the slow death of slavery the founding uh, generation had counted on was not happening. While a wave of manumissions did take place in the wake of the revolution, something else happened that served to actually re-entrench slavery in the United States. I'm not sure re-entrench is like actually a word, but I'm using it. I like it. One of the compromises the founding fathers had written into the Constitution was the end of the American participation in the Atlantic slave trade. Now, on its face, this seems anti-slavery, but in practice, what it actually did was to create a market for an internal slave trade. That wasn't initially super impactful, but in 1793, Eli Whitney patented the cotton gin, a machine that made it faster and more efficient to clean cotton, um, which could be then used in textile manufacturing. As a result, the textile industry's demand for cotton, previously a crop that had had limited use, boomed. Bonded labor was crucial to growing, picking, and processing the vast quantities of cotton the industry demanded, meaning that instead of dying out, the institution of slavery grew. To make things worse, it spread. Cotton cultivation required land. The demand for more and more and more land to grow cotton spurred the forcible removal of the Native American tribes who lived in the fertile lands of the American Southeast this quote-unquote trail of tears, right, Um, and encouraged the annexation of Texas and the war against Mexico. As the nation grew, whether through the 1803 Louisiana Purchase or the territorial acquisitions after the Mexican War, debate raged over how to handle the spread of slavery. Congress desperately tried to find ways to please all sides three separate times, in Missouri in 1820, in the Compromise of 1850, and in the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854. That is a very quick (laughs) run-through of the first half of the United States. (laughs) Uh, So let's slow down and take a closer look at a couple of things. First, it's important to see the shift happening in slavery during the cotton boom in order to understand the evolution of abolition during the same period. During the Age of Revolutions, we saw how calls to end slavery were tied to the insistence that enslaved people had natural rights, like all Americans, and thus deserved liberty. Even slaveholders like James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, George Washington, and others recognized that this was true, and posed a problem for those who profited from the ownership of human flesh. 
But in order for slavery to grow as it needed to facilitate the cotton boom, the ideology surrounding slavery would have to change. Instead, slaveholders developed a pro-slavery mindset, one that leaned heavily on white supremacy and racism. No longer satisfied to consider slavery a necessary evil, Southerners embraced it as a positive good. Further, slaveholders flexed their political power over and over again as they forced new territories open to slavery. The sense that the slaveholding South held outsized power and could dictate national policy without needing to even negotiate with the North due to the hyper-empowerment of the Three-Fifths Clause became known as the Slave Power Conspiracy in the North. As Patrick Rael puts it so succinctly, quote, slavery was wrong not simply or even because it hurt slaves. Slavery was wrong because it imperiled the government and unity of free whites. Abolitionist approaches likewise changed. Ideas about race hardened during the late 18th and early 19th century. If humans had natural rights and deserved liberty and slaves could not have liberty, many Americans reasoned that this wasn't because of a failing on the part of slaveholding whites, but due to something inherent in the biology of blacks. For some abolitionists in the early 19th century, it seemed clear that this was a potential problem for them. Abolition, though their desired goal, would result in a mixed race society. And they thought blacks wouldn't be satisfied to be free, but instead would demand civil rights, including the right to vote, that they believed that all people deserved. This did not bode well to many white Americans, whether North or South, abolitionist or slaveholder. This is as good a time as any to remind you that abolitionist does not mean anti-racist. Okay, lots of abolitionists were white supremacists. So to subvert that potential mixed race future, in the 18 teens, a certain subsection of abolitionists, mostly, though not totally white, advocated for what they called colonization or the plan to essentially ship African-Americans back to Africa, where they would establish their own societies safely distanced from white American society. This distance and a fresh start, so to speak, would allow blacks the space to become, quote unquote, civilized. In 1817, a group of white men founded the American Colonization Society. This was no fringe group. The ACS brought on prestigious members like Francis Scott Key, James Monroe, and Daniel Webster, and had funds enough to purchase land in Africa, soon named Liberia, and to ship almost 5,000 African Americans to establish new lives in that colony, which very much still exists, right? Liberia still exists. Though founded as a way to abolish slavery, the ACS largely resettled free blacks. So they, they weren't actually working to take people out of bondage and then ship them to Liberia. They were sort of just taking people who showed up or who were, you know, kind of interested, right? The American Colonization Society, while technically an abolitionist organization, was primarily an organization created by and for white people. A handful of prominent African-Americans supported the society, such as Richard Allen and James Fortin, who seemed excited by an outreach um, sort of call that the ACS did, where they pitched the men on their proposal for a free and independent black state. Um, Fortin, tellingly, suggested that this could be a chance to establish a great nation in the example of the blacks uh, of Saint-Domingue. But more generally, Black Americans largely rejected colonization. 
When the ACS presented their plan to a public group of free black Philadelphians, they roundly rejected the idea. James Fortin reported afterwards to the white ACS organizers, quote, 3,000 people at least attended, and there was not one soul that was in favor of going to Africa. So didn't go over well. Over the course of the 19th century, the idea of colonization would reappear and even morph later, much later, into black nationalist ideology at the end of the century. But for now, as an abolitionist effort, it was more or less dead in the water. The whites who shaped the colonization society were motivated more by racism couched as benevolence than a desire to destroy slavery. But in the 1830s, another white northerner launched a new way of advocating for abolition. William Lloyd Garrison, a newspaper man and moral reformer from Massachusetts, transformed antebellum abolition by demanding immediate and unconditional emancipation. In 1831, Garrison founded a newspaper called The Liberator, which became the central mouthpiece for abolitionism. Additionally, Garrison helped to draw together multiple smaller anti-slavery societies into one, the American Anti-Slavery Society, or AAS. Garrison was a fiery and radical speaker, unafraid of drawing criticism or risking his safety in his condemnation of the slave system and slaveholders. In the first issue of The Liberator, Garrison explained his position thus, quote, On this subject, I do not wish to think or speak or write with moderation. No, no. Tell a man whose house is on fire to give a moderate alarm. Tell him to moderately rescue his wife from the hand of the ravisher. Tell the mother to gradually extricate her babe from the fire into which it has fallen. But urge me not to use moderation in a cause like the present. I am in earnest. I will not equivocate. I will not excuse. I will not retreat a single inch. And I will be heard. And his radicalism was risky. In 1835, a mob in Boston attacked Garrison and dragged him through the street by a rope, threatening to tar and feather him. But Garrison recognized that, while certainly not fun, such attacks could actually be harnessed and then used to draw wider attention from the press, helping to actually spread the abolitionist message. And moreover, Garrison recognized that slavery wasn't a Southern problem, but an American problem, one that would need to be cut out from the very core of the nation. Famously, in one of his probably most famous acts uh, of his activism in the 1850s, Garrison burned a copy of the Constitution during a demonstration, calling it a covenant with death and an agreement with sin for its pro-slavery causes and compromises. It's really important to remember that Garrison was not the first radical abolitionist. Other anti-slavery activists had called for immediate emancipation, including, critically, African Americans who had in some cases paid for their advocacy with their lives. David Walker, a free black abolitionist who died at the young age of only 33 in 1830, published a pamphlet called An Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World, which rejected racism and colonization and demanded immediate emancipation and civil rights for African Americans. So Garrison is in no way inventing this stuff. Ryle says that Garrison could only be successful because previous black abolitionists had, quote, built a platform upon which he could stand. Let's be real. Garrison was able to stand on that platform and get attention because he was white. 
But with that platform, Garrison played an incredibly important role in helping to transform abolition in the antebellum era. As Rael puts it, quote, Never before had a white activist bundled together so many radical messages. The uncompromising tone, the moral righteousness, the call for immediate change, the utter neglect of slaveholder interest and sentiments. He outright rejected colonization, pointing his readers to the arguments of black abolitionists who insisted it was racist and did not support it. Just really briefly, I want to say all of those things that Rail says that Garrison did, you know, the uncompromising tone, the moral righteousness, the call for immediate change, the the neglect of, you know, slaveholder interest, those things, those are all things that are in David Walker's appeal, the appeal to the colored citizens of the world. It is the exact same tone. It's, you know, it's all the stuff that Garrison goes on to do. But Walker was black. And so it had a limited audience. So so Garrison is kind of standing on Walker's shoulders in a way that we like really have to recognize. Garrison wrote clearly and powerfully and used his newspaper experience to effectively spread the message that slavery was a moral wrong that must be ended. He used his power as a public figure and the pages of his newspaper to essentially signal boost black abolitionists and escaping slaves. He encouraged Frederick Douglass to tell his story by quite literally giving him the stage at a uh, convention, actually, like, without notice, apparently. (laughs) Frederick Douglass was like, whoa, I'm not ready for this. Um, And helped him to then later publish his narrative in 1845. He also helped to translate other anti-slavery efforts in ways that Americans could better understand. So, for example, when Nat Turner's uh, rebellion... The, the slave insurrection that he led um, in 1835 ended in the deaths of more than 50 whites in South Carolina. Garrison used the liberator to explain to his readers that such violence was the natural outcome of a system that denied humanity to an entire class of people. It was the same thing, he explained, that happened in every region where oppressed peoples tried to overthrow their oppressors, reminding Americans that they, too, had used violence to demand their liberty. Enslaved people were no different, and rebellions like that were justified. But the Garrisonians weren't all talk and no action. They also innovated interesting new tactics to attack slavery. They encouraged Northern abolitionists to literally swamp their elected officials in Washington with petitions against slavery. We talked about this actually a lot in our episode on political violence. So definitely check the details out there. But um, while those petitions weren't taken sort of individually very seriously, they caused such amazing gridlock in the Capitol that Congress actually had a short-lived gag order that prohibited that they even be discussed. Garrisonians understood that the petitions would almost certainly not be taken seriously, but instead intended that they would cause political strife in the halls of Congress and bring attention to the cause, which they absolutely did. They used the same tactic when they organized the mass mailing of abolitionist newspapers and pamphlets into the South with the hopes that they would get into the hands of literate slaves. They understood that enslaved people were were kept on threat of violent punishment from learning to read, so they knew the intended effect would be limited. But they also understood that flooding southern post offices with abolitionist material would cause problems for slaveholders, which again, 
It absolutely did. <laughs> the U.S. Postal Service allowed Southern postmasters to essentially censor the mail. And in South Carolina, it's it's always, it's South, always Carolina. South Carolina. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, God. A post office was attacked by thousands of men who burned bags of mail along with abolitionist effigies in 1835. One of the important things about Garrisonian abolitionism was its insistence that slavery was a moral wrong. Um, with his skills in causing a stir and in publishing, the Garrisonians helped to convince many Americans that slavery wasn't just an alternate economic or labor system, but a moral injustice. But this message just wasn't all that convincing to a large number of Americans, some who were just straightforwardly racist and others who just weren't tapped in, so to speak, to the issue. But as slaveholders increasingly demanded new territories to the West where slavery could expand, many Northerners were convinced by a different anti-slavery argument that free labor could not exist alongside the institution of chattel slavery. Who would hire free laborers when they could rent or purchase the enslaved to work for little or nothing? In the 1840s, the growing sectional crisis between North and South over westward expansion splintered the existing party system, forcing Americans to make their political decisions largely based on their positions in regards to slavery. In other words, slavery and abolition forced a complete realignment of the American political system. The Free Soil Party emerged, making the free labor argument central to their platform. The free labor movement was really not concerned with the morality of slavery, but rather their opposition to the spread of slavery into new territories. Even Northerners ambivalent about race or the institution of slavery as it exists in the South could be convinced by this argument. Within a decade, Americans who didn't fit into the increasingly pro-slavery, pro-expansion Democratic Party combined with the refugees from the disintegrating Whig Party and smaller, more radically anti-slavery parties like the Liberty Party all joined forces with the Free Soilers to establish the Republican Party. And yes, the party switch happened. Okay, moving on. Pro-slavery and abolition movements both hardened and radicalized in the 1850s. A new fugitive slave law strengthened the legal commandment in the Constitution that Northerners must actively return escaping bonds people back to their masters, which abolitionists argued made all cooperating Northerners com complicit in enslavement. When Illinois Senator Stephen Douglas drafted a bill that would bring the Kansas and Nebraska territories into the Union as states, the tension over slavery's expansion reached a boiling point. That bill would allow the territories to determine their own status in terms of slavery using popular sovereignty, which just means a general vote. Unsurprisingly, supporters of both slavery and abolition rushed into the state, each vying to establish a state government and influence the vote. The Kansas Territory devolved into chaos almost immediately. And Kansas marked a shift for some abolitionists. While Southerners had always been very willing to use violence to protect its system of enslavement, most abolitionists were evangelical Christians who were committed to pacifism. But were abolitionists willing to cling to pacifism as slavery, this Horrible moral evil became more entrenched and slaveholders used force to ensure its spread, right? Moral suasion, that Garrisonian tactic of persuading people using appeals to their emotions through things like books and speeches, think Uncle Tom's Cabin here as a perfect example, 
Um, you know, that was all well and good. But it started to seem like bringing a Bible to a gunfight as the sectional crisis intensified. Some abolitionists, therefore, changed their approach. In northern cities like Syracuse and Boston, abolitionists rioted to protect fugitive slaves from being returned to bondage. Henry Ward Beecher, the famous abolitionist minister from New York City, who we talk about a lot in our episode on Victoria Woodhull for a completely wild and unrelated reason, uh, helped to organize the New England Emigrant Aid Society, which paid for passage for abolitionists willing to move to the Kansas Territory and fight on behalf of abolition. Famously, Beecher supplied his emigrants with Sharps carbine rifles, which he suggested had more moral power than hundreds of Bibles, earning the guns the nickname Beecher Bibles. One abolitionist took the idea that violence could be used for righteous ends very seriously. John Brown, a radical abolitionist from upstate New York, moved to Kansas in 1855, joined by several of his family members. In May 1856, enraged by a pro-slavery raid on the abolitionist settlement of Lecompton that destroyed two abolitionist newspapers, as well as the attack on abolitionist Senator Charles Sumner on the floor of Congress, John Brown led a small group of abolitionists on a raid against pro-slavery settlers in the area of Pottawatomi Creek. In the matter of a few hours, Brown and his band, mostly made up of his own sons and son-in-law, hacked five pro-slavery men to death with broadswords. The raid kicked off even more unrest in Kansas, inspiring raids and retaliation from both sides for months. Abolitionists back on the East Coast were divided in their feelings on the violence. Garrison remained committed to pacifism and tried to ignore Brown as a marginal radical. But other prominent white abolitionists took him very seriously and started to believe that violence was going to be the key to actually ending slavery. After decades of writing, speaking, organizing, mailing pamphlets, some abolitionists started to believe that only force would end slavery. Thomas Wentworth Higginson, Samuel Gridley Howe, Theodore Parker, Franklin Benjamin Sanborn, Garrett Smith, and George Luther Stearns made up a shadowy group sometimes called the Secret Six, who organized and bankrolled John Brown in the late 1850s as he developed a plan to finally destroy slavery by attacking it from the inside. The funding and intellectual support from the Secret Six allowed John Brown the, the time and space to formulate a plan he'd been thinking on for years, that abolitionists could actively enable the creation of maroon communities or communities of fugitive slaves in the Appalachian Mountains, which would undermine slavery and facilitate escape from enslavement in the Lower South. Like so many before him, Brown cited, what else, Haiti, as his precedent, believing that the Maroon Society could work to destroy slavery through guerrilla warfare, which would inspire black and white abolitionists and escaping slaves to join the fight as combatants against the immoral institution in sort of a, well, I don't know, smaller maybe isn't even the right word, in sort of a, a 19th century version of the Haitian Revolution, right? This is not at all what happened. Brown gathered a small coalition of supporters, and in October 1859, he led his band to the small town of Harpers Ferry, Virginia, where they attempted to seize a federal armory, where they hoped that they could gather arms that they could use to outfit their future guerrilla band. 
Quickly, the raid fell apart as the group was discovered and Virginia militia and federal troops, always on alert against slave insurrections, eventually arrested Brown and his men. In December, Brown was hanged by the state of Virginia. In his final days, Brown used his time left on earth to write and speak at length about his motives, never begging for his life, but rather doubling down on why he had taken his actions and why he believed more such actions should take place. He cast himself as just one small part of a larger process to dehumanize and destroy anyone who opposed slavery. Quote, if it is deemed necessary that I should forfeit my life for the furtherance of the ends of justice and mingle my blood further with the blood of my children and with the blood of the millions in this slave country whose rights are disregarded by wicked, cruel, and unjust enactments, I submit. So let it be done. End quote. On the morning of his execution, Brown wrote a short note that he handed to his jailer. It wrote, quote, I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away but with blood. I had, as I now think, vainly flattered myself that without very much bloodshed, it might be done, end quote. In other words, Brown was saying that he thought he might be able to end slavery with only a little violence. Now he knew that it would only end with a great deal of spilled blood. Disheartened, but also inspired by Brown's martyrdom, many abolitionists, even the pacifists, agreed. Garrison wrote that, quote, Rather than these men wearing their chains in a cowardly and servile spirit, I would, as an advocate of peace, much rather see them breaking the head of the tyrant with their chains, end quote. Brown's raid was remarkable, not only in its radical combination of insurrection and abolitionist ideology, but because nowhere in the slaveholding New World had a white abolitionist led an armed attempt to, to destroy slavery. Unlike other whites who were willing to signal boost and write moralizing sentimental literature, John Brown was willing to lay down his life to destroy an unjust institution. Slavery did not end with John Brown's death. Southern slaveholders doubled down on their commitment to white supremacy and to enslavement. Northerners became more leery of the slave power conspiracy. And when Abraham Lincoln won the presidential election just months later, we all know what followed. Secession, declarations of war, a long and bloody conflict that ended in the deaths of some 750,000 American men plus more civilians. But it also ended in the destruction of the institution of slavery in the United States. John Brown had been prophetic. It could not be destroyed without significant bloodshed. But I want to adjust our perspective just a little bit. Instead of seeing the Civil War as the event that destroyed slavery, I think it's important, and, and I really appreciate how Patrick Rail forces this, um, that we think of the Civil War as the final event in a decades-long process of destroying slavery. The abolition of slavery didn't happen in the United States in 1865. Instead, the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment were the culmination of a decades-long fight for abolition in America. This is an interesting perspective. Was it? Okay. Say, want to say more about that? <laughs> well, I mean, compared to, I think you pointed this out in the intro, compared to our other episodes, which focus really on, you know, like, well because mm -hmm. you are the Civil War historian, they tend to focus on the Civil War and the mm -hmm. post-emancipation period um, to place the Civil War 
as sort of a culmination event rather than the start mm-hmm. of an event is a interesting yeah. way to look at it and to put it alongside right like because obviously this is this debate between pacifism and blood sacrifice which is so important in the 19th century and early 20th century just worldwide um is interesting when when juxtapose against the institution of slavery and it's yeah been, yeah I, I that's know. what i really appreciated about this book one aspect of that that i think is really important that patrick rail does a really wonderful job of of putting in the book is that he places it not only in this longer timeline but he also places it within the context of abolition around the atlantic world so i talked a lot about haiti here but in the book he's talking about you know abolition in brazil and around the spanish um around the spanish colonies right and in england and in france and in all of these different places around the world and how those processes of abolition are very very different than ones that, that than what ends up happening in the united states um Although the United States, you know, abolitionists in the United States are looking to all of those examples to help them sort of come up with their strategy in the United States, right? Or inside the United States, I mean. But at the same but at the same time the pro slavery folks are looking to those examples around and seeing that as the ultimate threat threat and that they have to exactly and that's now, right? why they're scrambling right we see slavery actually as mm-hmm. the rest of the atlantic world most of the rest of the atlantic world n- not everywhere right um is loosening its grip on slavery or things are changing or things are you know some many most places in fact are abolishing slavery the united states is actually doubling down right and doubling down again and again and again um, in a way that's that sets it apart from what's happening around um, the rest of the Atlantic world. So I really appreciated his sort of retelling of what can be a very familiar story in a way that really helps you to see that this isn't something that happens um, in a moment or just kind of as a byproduct of this civil war that's over other stuff, but rather um, this long culmination of lots of things coming together and building up and building up and building up and then sort of, you know, I don't know, tipping over, right? The balance is tipped somehow during the Civil War and and that leads to emancipation. Um, There's a lot more to be said about all of this stuff. I hope that the way that I was able to kind of jam it in (laughs) to this episode um, makes sense and that it wasn't too kind of simplistic. I was afraid, like, okay, I'm just going to, like, talk about (laughs) all these things we've talked about before and it might maybe it'll be boring. But the idea was just to kind of reframe the way that we think about how slavery died over a long time. And if I can say one final thing, one thing that I was thinking about when I was writing this episode was that it made very clear that slavery ended because lots and, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people over time put effort and energy and and emotional energy into trying to kill something 
in the ways that they could, whether it was like by writing or by literally giving up their lives in slave insurrections or, you know, all, all these very different ways. And the vast majority of them never saw the end product, right? The vast majority of them didn't see mm-hmm. emancipation. Um, and I think there's two ways you can look at that. You can look at that as incredibly depressing um, that it took so long and it was so protracted. But to me, it actually helped me to remember that change takes a long time sometimes. And it, that's not necessarily a good thing. It's not to give a pass to the people that kept slavery going for a long time, certainly. Um, but that change can take place even if it does, the, even if the end result doesn't come in your lifetime. So. I was desperate to get yeah. some kind of hope this week <laughs> as I was writing this episode. So that's what I came away with. All right. I like it. Um, and if you want the rest of the story, pick up his book, Patrick Ryle. Oh, yes, absolutely. Definitely pick up this book. It's very, very worth reading. And if you're interested in... Um, more of the details on many of the things we mentioned. We have a whole laundry list of other episodes for you. Um, So thank you very much for listening. If you would like to, um, if you have thoughts about all of this, if you want to, if you do end up reading Patrick Rail's book and you want to talk about it, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at dig, what is it? Dig (laughs) underscore. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at dig underscore history. You can find us um, on Instagram at dig underscore history. Is that right? Um, We have a discussion group on Facebook called dig history pod squad. Just search for it in the search bar and you will find us. Um, You can email us at hello at dig history. No, at hello at dig podcast dot org. Yes. And uh, if you enjoyed this episode today, be sure to leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah. If you're going to leave a one-star. Only five-star reviews. We don't need I will not (laughs) allow anything else. And tell your friends because folks will find our podcasts if you, you know, rate us a bunch and give us nice, good five-star ratings. But if you just want to share us, you know, with your friends or family and word of mouth is a great way to get the word out about Dig History Podcast as well. Totally, totally is. Um, And if you're using or you're interested in using podcasts in the classroom, um, do go to our website, digpodcast.org, and check out our For Educators section, which has tons now of lesson plans. Some are really, really detailed, ready to go and implement in your classroom tomorrow. Thanks to the hard work of our educational resource consultant, Hannah Van Reed. Um, who is doing fantastic work putting together lessons um, on that part of our website. So definitely check that out if you are an educator. Um, Fun story. So I have a student this semester who I think she's a sophomore. Maybe she's a first year. I don't remember. Olivia Turner Leftwich. But she told me today or yesterday that in high school in Tennessee – Someone assigned our episodes to her class and she just put together that it was me because we were listening to episodes this week. um, (laughs) That is absolutely wild. (laughs) Isn't that so weird? That's crazy. I wonder if it was Maggie. Oh, that would be really interesting. Yeah. That would be really But either way, how amazing. Yeah. How yeah. amazing. Yeah. If you're using our if you're using stuff in the classroom, let us know, man. Yeah, we'd, we'd love, we'd to, hear love that. to hear it. 
Mm-hmm. And let us know how you're using it, right? We, we love to get insight about what your students think and what works and what doesn't in the classroom. So yeah. give us that feedback, baby. Definitely. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye. Everyone. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of DIG, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Averill Earls. Thanks for listening. Where the fuck did they get broadswords in the 19th century? <laughs> I know. Isn't that wonderful? It gives it this like Game of Thrones energy. I really enjoy it. In December, Brown was hung by the state of Virginia. Hang? Ah, fine. I hate that. I think it's so stupid. But each state had a very different path to abolition. I'm going to say that again. Let me say that again. While Southerners had always been very willing to use violence to protect... Oh my God, I can't talk. Allowed John. (laughs) My friend John. If I is deemed necessary, if it is deemed... Yes. (laughs) If I is deemed necessary... Oops. Do you want me to read the next one? Um, I don't know what I did there. No, I want you to. <laughs> okay. And then swap I'll the rest to, of yeah. Or just break this one up. Oh, I can do it. Oh, yeah. It's because I... Okay. After all. <laughs> After all. After all. It all... Ooh! <laughs> I thought you were going to delete it. What <laughs> These? <Yes. laughs> Sorry. One, abolish- one abolitionist took... Oh, what did you do? Clicked up to a different spot. Pointing his readers to the to the blah. Oh, Curie? No. <laughs> no. Stop grumbling. <laughs> Shh. Quiet, dog. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.